Welcome to the Prime Talk with your hosts, Dan and James. Oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And where are we from today, Dan? Well, we're still in, sadly, still in the abyss. The sixth layer, right? Yes, we are in the sixth layer of this uh, abyssal burrito or bean dip of hell or Hades. Yeah, still still riding the, the blood river. Right, that's right, riding the blood river of pain. So uh, we've got a giant spider raft. What is there a name for the sixth layer of uh, the abyss? Yeah, uh, well, well, we know I can't see now. You can't do that to me because what you're doing is you're, you're tempting me. <laughs> oh, okay, I can look it up to check other to, to go off of right, to minimize Skype or whatever, and that's a we know that's risky. <laughs> you're going to lose me. Maybe people want me to take that risk. Yeah, it's you know the connection, the connection in the abyss, the internet connection. Right. They need to. Elon Musk needs to help out with that or something, right? Get some satellites down here uh, because. Right. Well, the five G no. is it's not it's the coverage map of the abyss. You know how like when you go to you go to a cell phone carrier and they show you the map and it's like completely yeah. covered. It's not so good here in in the in the abyss. So soon we'll have like now now cover the coverage extending to the abyss. Right. That would be awesome <laughs> for, for, for you, Delvers. Uh, someone's so is someone texting me. Uh, let's see. You mean like Hi. a personal text? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm getting who's oh unknown lands oh I see okay it's not me there there's uh, I'm I'm part of other chats and these people are chatting with each other okay so that's 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 why <laughs> you realize we're 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 broadcasting yeah the show this, now. it's just it's just a train wreck right anyway the sixth layer <laughs> per fandom is the realm of a million eyes which is different than uh and and it's the realm of the great mother chief goddess of the beholder pantheon I like that whoa. Whoa, you like that? That sounds impressive. The realm of a million wait, so, eyes. So wait, the chief mother? So you mean there's like a beholder kind of deity or something the or demon? Great mother, that's right. Mama. Mama, mama mother. Oh, let's see. Mama, let's... we're coming home. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, it's just a giant beholder. Uh, wait, or is it, it, you know what? There's yeah. a rumor she's actually a giant gaspor. That's right. That's right. You can Let's keep, find out. You can hit her once and, and explodes for 20 d twenty twenty d six damage. Hope you're right. Well, I I, I did that. I, I did put a gas bore in. Uh, there's a, a random gener- generator. Um, and again, hello to everyone from the Grog Empire. I see a, a number of our dear friends. The sagacious one. The captain general is on. Uh, our our dear friend, the angry monk, is on. Um, other folks, but uh, I used a random generator dungeon to set up random monsters. And first level, it had a gas board. Now, meta gaming, as we like to say, which is using outside knowledge uh, for play. You know, most first level characters they know they're not going to meet a beholder first level, they, or you're uh, sadistic if you're doing that. So. Um, they roll random account and the gas board comes. And what do they do? The as it's the, half the people are like, no, don't touch it. This one magic user, oh, I, I, I shoot magic missile at it. And so what does it do? Yeah. It explodes. So it was pretty funny. I'm like, who would do that? But 
apparently they did it in the 70s and they still do it today. Uh, that sounds awesome. That, that, it was well, awesome. Well played. It was, well played. It was a lot of fun. Speaking of fun, uh, you know, here in the States, they're sl- starting to relieve uh, some of the stay-at-home um, orders, right? We're able to go out and get infected in faster rates than we were before. So, right. Right. Uh, Looking forward to the rebound. Right. Yeah. I'm, I, it, I think they have testing centers. They should just have virus centers. You should just be able to just go there and get the virus. I think they're called supermarkets, but if uh, <laughs> there could be other places, they could just set up and you can just get it, just get it over with. Because uh, at this point, it's kind of frustrating. Um, but assuming this trend continues, that we will have Grog Talk, GrogCon, October 9th through the 11th. Whoever survives the pandemic, hopefully you'll be able to, sh- to join us then at the uh, Days Hotel by Wyndham. And uh, that's we're still looking forward to that. we got to get with Craig at some point. I'm sure he's kind of holding off to see how things are going. But uh, hopefully in the next month or so, we can get with him and finalize some of the, some of the dates. He's kind of like the guy, our governor he is. now, right? So we're waiting for information from him. Like, you know, he's, I, does, I wonder if he has a Dr. Fauci. I don't know. Yeah, he, he needs something. He needs uh, <laughs> someone who's going to allow, who says if it's, because if not, then you've told me that I'm hosting GrogCon, which just I, sounds yes, amazing. Yeah. Nothing like <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. BYOP, bring your own pajamas and, and sleeping bag. And and a swab so you, we can test you and temperature check. That would be good too. Yeah, I'm sure your I'm sure your wife is gonna be thrilled. Yeah, uh, that you know, so that you may be like it may be good. Uh, so um, yes, thank you. I'm I'm not I am not planning to go. I'm staying in my secluded bunker and my Zoom account, you know, we're all using Zoom or Skype or something to talk to everyone. My background is a atomic bomb shelter from the 50s it's uh that's that's what i look like now i'm just hanging out waiting for it to happen um also want to give a shout out to uh, brian who's online his uh his weekly uh well he he dms every other week uh grognard's guild online it's going very well i played a couple weeks ago it was super fun um if you're interested go out to the meetup also dm josh is is running temple of elemental evil so if you are home, locked in, and you're not playing, give us a try. It's usually Friday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, next week, we do not have Grog Talk, but instead we have a very special patron uh, live event that will be uh, streaming 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And what are we going to be doing, Dan? We're going to be running the Halls of Tizentane by yeah. Albi Fiore. Yes, uh, a you know, probably, is it fair to say it's your favorite adventure? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Rising of the Dark by Daniel Collerton uh, would be second. But, yeah, it's definitely Halls of Tizentane. So we've, we've got uh, four folks lined up to play, um, plus you and I, maybe some special guests as well. So it'll be a fun event, 2 p.m., uh, next week. And again, thank you to our patrons who make this happen. We know with the economy and everything else, you have plenty of priorities to provide support to. And if you're continuing to do that, thank you. If you'd like to be a patron, go to patreon.com slash grog talk. Um, we do have a heraldry coming up. Uh, I, I just got to get with our, we have a new patron who has, uh, uh, I just need to find out what area he's claim, he, he or she is claiming. So that'll hopefully next week. 
Uh, Swedish, Swedish Challenge, again, Japan is killing it. We got up to number 21 during this week. So again, thank you to Minion and uh, other friends out there. Very exciting. Uh, we did get an iTunes review, again, thanking us. I, I don't have the exact one. I'll have to look it up. Uh, so please, uh, that's always great if you leave a, uh, a review, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, that's how people can find us. Okay, so Dan, why don't you introduce uh, who we have joining us? Okay, so it's our pleasure today to have Dr. Lewis Pulsifer. He is a prolific game designer. He has a website, pulsifergames.com, which provides supplementary and playtesting material for his games. He also has a game design channel on YouTube. But most importantly for us and for our listeners, he was a prolific contributor to RPG magazines in the late 1970s and the 1980s most notably White Dwarf and Dragon Magazine, by my estimate, close to 100 articles. So, and you know, I, I like to read them before our, our guest articles, before our, we interview them. That would take too much time to have done today. But so, Dr. Pulsifer, welcome to Grog Talk. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I can see why you'd have trouble reading that much. I'm planning to have two books each about 100,000 words, it'll be reprints of articles plus some new material. That is great news because, and we'll talk about your articles because what I absolutely love about your articles is how useful they are to readers. So, you know, and we'll talk about that. We can get into whether it was your teaching background that influenced that style for your articles. But maybe you could start off by telling us, because uh, we, you know, this is about, first edition AD&D, so we love to go way back in time. That'll be our focus. Could you take us back to when you first discovered, I know you were a war gamer, could you take us back to when you first discovered Dungeons & Dragons? Well, of course, most of the people who played Dungeons & Dragons then were war gamers. Um, I actually corresponded with Gary Gigax in 1966 when I was all of 15 years old mm. as part of the International Federation of War Games. I remember calling him sir, and he said, don't call me sir, I'm not old enough. <laughs> and he wasn't really at that time. It's a long time ago, obviously. Um, as for Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I lived for a short time in a little village in Bellevue, Michigan. And somebody's mother told my mother and so on that somebody else in town played games. I went and visited him, and he had Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I looked at it. And there were lots of dice. And I said, as I often said then, I hate dice games. I was a diplomacy player at that point. Um, so I didn't take it up at that point. Then in 1975, uh, my brother and I went to a convention. We had a, a camper that we'd borrowed from our stepfather. And at night, we got a Dungeons & Dragons game going in the camper. The referee got up on top, the part over the cab, and the rest of us sat there and played through much of the night. Um, I don't know if any of us had played before other than the referee. And that was my first Dungeons & Dragons game. Uh, and it was kind of strange because the referee liked um, firebombs. So we'd carry Molotov cocktails along with, around with us. And we'd be in a dungeon and we'd run into like 30 hobgoblins. And we were like third, fourth, fifth level, something like that. 
I was an Elven magic user because I was going to be a magic user. That was always something I knew about Dungeons and Dragons. I was going to be a magic user. So we'd throw firebombs at them and burn them up. And the other thing I remember about that game is the elves had a possibility to see or detect hidden doors. But the referee felt that the elf had to actively do that rather than just have it happen. Well, being a fairly stubborn person, I started saying, elf, 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 for long extended periods of time until he finally gave up and said, okay, we'll just assume that you're always paying attention. We call it, yeah, we call it now what elfing the room. Yeah, we elf the room. That's what they call it. Yeah, the elves, yeah. elves we, go around we, and do it. We still have that debate, don't we, about even, what, 40, 50 years later about whether or not you've got to concentrate for the, this, the secret or is it, you know, is it just the concealed? So, yeah, we haven't answered any of these questions. Um, did, you, did you survive your first adventure? We survived. And then the question was, how do we get the rules? So we went back home. And we'd been involved in the Michigan Organized Wargamers, which was a war game club in Michigan. I lived in Michigan at the time. And uh, we ran, had brand tournaments and so on. And we knew a guy who was distributing game stuff. In, he wasn't in Grand Rapids, but he was pretty far away. So we organized an expedition, drove up there, bought a copy of the old, I don't know if it was the white box or the brown box, but by then Greyhawk was out. Um, but I don't believe on the next supplement may not have been out yet. Anyway, uh, so we picked up a copy and some of those funky dice that are so old and then went back home and I reffed for my brother and that was all we had. Now, we're, we're at this point in time, because you graduate, right, in, what, in 1973, because this is going to become relevant, because you pursue a Ph.D. Yes. So at Duke. Yes. So when I went to that convention in 1975, that was summer break from Duke. Okay. 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 Um, and so, so at some point in time, I assume the D&D &D bug bit you, right? Because you'd said that first you weren't all that intrigued with it. Well, as soon as I played the game and realized what it was and realized that even though it looks like a dice game, it is not. It's a microcosm of life, and your objective is to avoid having to rely on the dice to succeed uh, or rely on the dice as seldom as possible, let's say. And, and, and so, so it was okay with me, and I, I was a big fan of fantasy and science fiction. And when did you start? At some point, I assume you switched to DMing. Well, I played that first game in 75, and then I was the GM from then on for my brother. And when I went back to Duke that year, I organized a group uh, to play D&D, &D, and I was the initial GM. And then my point of view of groups is you should try to get as many people to GM as possible. So we sort of trained the other guys up to GM because otherwise the GM never gets to play. Yep. I am immensely suspicious of any GM who wants to GM and doesn't want to play. <laughs> GMing, GMing is work. If you want to GM, it's because you want to impose your notions on the game and you want to sort of control the game. And I don't like that at all. Okay. So I am very suspicious of that and I try to avoid it. 
Um, and you were an early reader, obviously, of Dragon Magazine. I noticed that there, there's a letter of yours that's published. And then, James, the reason why I'm going to bring this up is because Lou is complaining about something we complained about. In, in a letter in Dragon Magazine number three, you complain about the fiction that is included. Do you call it? You complain about the fiction writing that is included. You feel that there is a lot of fiction that one could read, which is going to be a lot better than the fiction being published in Dragon Magazine. Uh, something that James and I have have talked about. We we, we weren't fans, but the. Well, in general, in, in D&D, there's two ways to go about it. You can play it like a game, or you can play it like a storytelling machine. And back then, because we were war gamers, we tended to play it as a game. Nowadays, it's much more a storytelling machine because so many of the players are not war gamers and may not be gamers at all, except for D&D or other RPGs. Um, and my point of view is, if I want to consume, I hate that word, but that's the only word I can think of. If I want to consume fiction, I'm going to get it from professionals who have been curated. In other words, from people who are writing novels. Why would I care about this Yahoo GM who thinks they're writing a good story and generally isn't? So I object immensely to being dragged around by the nose by some GM who puts me on rails and wants something to happen. Uh, so, uh, and, and at some point in time, then you make your way to, you do your doc, you do your doctoral work, right? I guess cause you're working probably on your dissertation in England, correct? Three years research. I took a very long time to do my PhD because I'm a slug and I was in England and I ended up getting married in England and so on. And, and, and let's face it because you were spending a lot of time writing articles for, for White Dwarf magazine. And <laughs> so that, that's what was going to be the next question, is when did you actually have time to and, actually do And designing games as well for Games Workshop. That's exactly right. You designed, did you not, I believe you designed the first, I want to say, fantasy board game for Games Workshop? Yes. Uh, Valley of the Four Winds. And that was earlier, right? So I think, I don't have the year on that. I mean, maybe like 78 or something. Well, was, that's when I was designing it. I think it got published like in 1980. Okay, so um, tell us about going over to Eng England, because what I think is interesting is is that you're obviously prolific. I mean, there's, you have I credited to you, I, I think, 23 articles in Dragon Magazine. But my sense is that my, my count was probably a lot higher than that for you for White Dwarf. You're actually, it looks like, going to become a contributing editor. Your name is on the masthead. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like, what was the D&D &D scene like, so to speak, in England compared to the States if it was different? Well, there weren't so many people who had heard of it because it was an import from America. And so they got started later, in effect. Games Workshop was the, um, had the license, I suppose you could say, in England at that time or in the United Kingdom for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, in fact, at one point, they were supposed to do a supplement and I was writing the supplement. You know, the, the supplements used to came, come out and uh, I was writing the supplement and then they lost their license. And that was the end of that. Um, I don't remember, I tried to think last night, I don't remember how I met them. However, um, there was a game shop in London and there were very few game shops. Um, 
and they had uh, announcement boards up and so on and so forth. And somehow I got in touch with Albi Fiore, who was the editor of Games Magazine, which was a prominent magazine at the time. And through him, I got to know Graham Levin. And my very first game that I designed, which was uh, Lords and Wizardry, it was a variation with considerable changes from Stratego. Um, and through Albie, I got to know the Games Workshop guys. And they were starting the magazine, and I was writing things on a old, little old typewriter that I'd bought. Um, and from there, it just sort of grew. Like, for example, um, they were in charge of the Fiend Folio at the time. The Fiend Folio was done in Britain, not in the United States. And Don Turnbull was the ultimate editor of that, who then later got the D&D license from, uh, took it away from Games Workshop. I don't know the details of that. But uh, I had submitted some monsters for White Dwarf. And one day when I was in the shop, uh, Ian or Steve said, can we use these monsters in the Fiend Folio? And I said, well, yeah, I guess as long as I get a free copy. And that's how... The Archimentals, the uh, Elemental Princes of Evil, and some other monsters of mine got into the Fiend Folio. Oh, wait, we need to know them all. Can you tell us? <laughs> We've got. <laughs> well, I think. Yeah, the, the, the Elemental Princes of Evil are the ones that have taken on a life of their own, ah, and there's even, a, a, there's even an entry in Wikipedia, Archimentals, for them. Um, and I ran into one once as a player, and I hate running into my own monsters. Um, they were, he was much tougher than we were. So we grabbed what we needed to grab and we hit the road really fast. Uh, um, but the there's, irony. Also, uh, there's also poltergeists, perhaps, uh, giant bats. I don't know if it was giant bats or something else, but whatever it was, one of my characters lost an eye to one in a game. So that was also very annoying since it was my monster. I think if yeah, you so look at the index. Is it, yeah, are you credited yet? So Poltergeist is in here. Obviously, giant bats are in here. Um, so are the you. The Elemental you, Princes of Evil. I'm not sure there were any others. Okay, okay. So were you. I wonder if you were credited in here. I think my name is in there somewhere, maybe in the index. Okay, so, okay. So what we need to do is like a family feud. The top 10 loopholes for monsters from from fiend folio and then we could try to guess because i'm sure that people that only take three hours to f figure out which ones is which that would be amazing <laughs> and james didn't we just use the elemental did we use the elemental princes in one of our yes, adventures didn't I, thought, we? I think we thought about uh yeah yeah um what was the because you mentioned it and i didn't want to uh not ask you about it the supplement that you were thinking thinking of doing that games workshop was working on was that going to be a supplement to original D&D because we're talking what late 70s I assume at this point in time so first yeah. edition is coming out it right? was it was still a supplement to uh original D&D as far as I can remember just like you know Greyhawk and uh Enchanted Labyrinth or the Demon one and so on it was going to be a, a paperback book of that size Okay. So did you, so you obviously, it sounds like you spent time at Games Workshop, right? When it opened up and their, their store that they had in London? I visited them periodically. I couldn't say how often. Um, 
So, you know, I got to know them well enough to know that, that, uh, Ian was the marketing guy and the business person. And Steve was the guy who just worked and worked and worked. And he was kind of the, the foundation of the whole business as far as I'm concerned. Could you tell us, and I don't, you know, you know, obviously this is about you today, but, you know, we just went through White Dwarf Magazine number 18, uh, which has my all-time favorite adventure, uh, which is Albie's Halls of Tis and Thane. Uh, and, you know, sadly, of course, you know, uh, we lost Albie, what, about a decade ago or so. Hey, could you tell us a little bit, I mean, how much did you interact with him? Is there anything you can tell us about Albie? He just seems to me like, in all honesty, like the coolest guy on the planet. He was cool. Yes. And uh, I had probably more contact with him for quite a while than with the Games Workshop guys because he was the editor of Games Magazine and I was contributing things to that. And then Games Magazine was associated with the shop and Graham was the owner of both. Um, I actually had uh, Diplomacy Games and Variants published by Graham. But unfortunately, he made a mistake somewhere along the line and got his Chops in trouble, and they shut down. Old business, poof. Okay, and and um, you, know, you were. How did you find a group over there? Because I saw a reference somewhere where you made a, a reference to the King's College campaign, which you called quite stingy, I believe. Well, there was a billboard. Well, a tack board, really, where people would tack up little cards and, and notices that they wanted to, you know, players and so on. And I was looking for a group and I found a notice and I wrote to the guy, of course, that time it was snail mail. And we agreed that I would meet and teach some people how to play D and D. Well, then he got sent down, which is to say he flunked out of King's College London, and got sent to a lower university. That's the way things work in England. Uh, and I said, oh, well, so much for that. But one of his friends got my mail address from Jonathan, Bob Carlyle, and he arranged for me, and I walked down to University of London, which was quite a hike, but back then I could do that. Um, and I met four people who wanted to learn how to play D&D, two males, two females. And uh, they all became my friends and are still my friends. And I married one. Um, another one married my wife's best friend. And the other two who were not attached to each other at the time married. So I think that's an example of how Dungeons & Dragons can really be social and promote that sort of thing. And if I can and be of course, so... Having, having two females playing D&D at that time was quite unusual. Yeah. And if I could be so bold to ask, so is that still your current wife? Yes. Wow. So your current wife, you met playing D&D. &D yes, we're England. all still married. All three three couples are still married, yes. Did she ever read your articles and say, uh, Lou, I think you got that one wrong? Well, she did GM, but she had a, a minor problem that she felt she let the side down if, she didn't, if the players were too successful. And she got angry about it. Well, you know, that doesn't work very well. Uh, but she and you're like, this is the woman for me. <laughs> she hasn't played D&D &D in like 15 years. Um, she was never a general game player, although she will occasionally, but there are difficulties there. Um, so, yes, it was unusual. Um, 
<laughs> okay, so so when did you start? So so when did you started writing? You, you're you're amazingly prolific. I mean, honestly, I cannot think of somebody who has written as many articles, at least in the in the late seventies and the and the uh, to the mid eighties as you. I mean. Your article, you you have peppered not only White Dwarf but Dragon Magazine. I think you were what in Imagine Magazine. You were in Pegasus. You were in the Dungeoneer Journal. A lot you were of at, magazines everywhere. Um, so what I thought was really interesting, as I mentioned about your articles and why I think compiling them would be very useful, is you really did seem to even at that point, And I assume you're getting a PhD with thoughts of going into to academia. They really do seem to have a sort of a teaching aspect to you know, you're writing articles how to DM. You're they're very useful articles. Was was that very intentional, taking that kind of teaching bent? In some respects, I'm a natural teacher, I suppose. Um, it just seemed to me if you were gonna write that kind of thing, you would want to try to teach people something. And I could present evidently presented myself very uh, forcefully, I don't know that that that. Well, I'll give you an example. Mark Miller, design traveler, and a great many other games is far more well known in gaming than I am. Wrote to me a few years ago, and asked me how old I was because he thought I must be older than he was. Well, it turns out he's a couple years older than I am. But it was just the conviction that I conveyed in those articles that made him think I was much older. Um, and now, you may be familiar with my Worlds of Design column on EN World, and that's twice a month, and I have managed to keep up with that for a year and a half now. So um, it's, it's an interesting task to try to write, find these 600 to 900 word subjects that are worthwhile. Um, but I present myself fairly forcefully there, and some people really get offended by that, too, just like in the old days. Well, and we're going to talk about some of those. Uh, it's always fun digging up uh, old uh, controversies. Well, you know, and it, it, it's controversies about gaming, so it's not really, it's certainly not uh, the end of the world. Um, I want to ask you, though, about your King's College campaign, because I thought this was entertaining, because James and I have often talked about how long it should take, say, for characters to move up levels and things like that. And you said that that campaign was the stingiest you'd ever heard of. You said 35 adventurers, seven magic items, 47 dead, excluding resurrections, and no one near 5,000 experience points. <laughs> I said that? Yes, that's, a, <laughs> that's what I have down here, unless I've, unless I've cut and pasted it wrong. I, I have you saying that, yes, in the, in the King's College London well, campaign, which is stingiest I've ever heard of. There may have been some total party kills early on, <laughs> but that stopped once they figured out what they needed to do, which was have really big parties. So the players played several characters, and I've always been in favor of that because if you just play one character and that character for some reason is incapacitated or is a magic user and saving their last spells, you don't have much to do. But if you play two characters at least, then generally one of them has something to do. Now, some people say, oh, I can't keep track of two characters, but I say, what, are you weak-minded? It's not that complicated, especially at lower levels. Now, if you're trying to play 18th level characters, but but we never do that. We never never have done that. The game is broken at that level. You know, it just doesn't work. Um, but uh, it did take a very long time to go up, like 10 adventures perhaps to go up a level. 
Um, so I don't know about the 5,000 experience points, and I'm not sure about the 47 dead, although I remember one total party kill where there were 18 or 20 dead. <laughs> it was a really big party. <laughs> sleep spells were poison. <sighs> if you got hit with a few sleep spells, you were screwed. Yeah, we we just we so just had that was one reason why you had big parties. Yeah, we just had that yesterday. I, I I ran my game online. You know, obviously we can't see it. And it's the same. You know, uh, the magic user was trying to cast it in front of the party, and I don't automatically uh, allow that he's even though he's a genius. There's the dynamic of combat, so I made him basically make a saving throw to see if he landed it just outside the party reach, and he failed to save. So. The orcs were slept, half the party was slept. Yeah, and, and you know, if there were 10 orcs that they didn't see, it would have been game over. So you're exactly right, that's that's funny. Still happening. Well, and if I recall, I saw you wrote an article where you talked about things that characters could bring into the dungeon for extra protection. Like, I don't know if you remember this. So James, why should you bring, I believe, let me see, dead, dead rats, make sure they're dead, dead rats in a bag. Dead rats in a bag? Any idea? Why should you bring... This would be like a new trivia segment for our show. Yes. Why should you bring in dead rats in a bag into your dungeon? I mean, what adventure doesn't do that? They're not thinking. And just to let you know, Lou, some of us are that dim-witted. I played a single character that was multi-classed, and I kept forgetting. I was a cleric ranger, and James can confirm this. I kept forgetting that I was a cleric. I kept looking for healing. <laughs> So, oh dear! So, so James, why do you bring why do you bring rats in a bag into a dungeon? Uh, well, let's see. Do you for because they have disease, and you or you feed them to your to the monsters? That would be my guess. Oh, Lou, do you remember? I think that's that was some of your advice, wasn't it, Lou? If, I mean, it's only been what forty years. Well, I wrote an article that was titled "Ready for Anything." And that was where a lot of that stuff, and, and many people mention that article even today. Um, I don't remember specifically why the, the dead rats, but certainly you could throw them down and a monster might stop and eat one while you're running away. Because running away is, to me, part of D&D. Your typical D&D group, you know, uh, they beat open the door and they charge forward and fight and so on. They don't even think about running away. Yep. Well, let's that's not very, you know, the game isn't intellectual, but it's, it's not very cerebral. Um, so the way we ran it, I guess I sort of taught the other players to do it, both at Duke and in England, was take prisoners and squeeze them till the pips squeak, as Lloyd George once said, get all the information out you can. But if the referee doesn't allow any information to come out, there's no point in doing it. And that's typically what happens. The referees, you can't learn anything from these guys, even with ESP and so on. And the other thing was run away, especially if what's going on has nothing to do with your mission. We were very mission-oriented. And in the end, in uh, North Carolina, I had some soldiers playing, and they could understand that. You know, mission-oriented. We're not here just to, to grub experience points or to grub treasure. We're here to achieve a mission, even if it's a mission that we assign for ourselves. Because to me, um, the way I wanted to play and the way I arranged my campaign was, it was a war between good and evil. And the players were the good guys who were kind of point men for the war. And so their mission was to smite evil. Um, 
And if you run into a random monster and it's uh, an unintelligent thing that isn't evil, why bother with it? Avoid it. Don't kill it for experience points. In fact, I got to the point where and I not only didn't give experience for treasure, I didn't give experience for monsters. I gave experience for the adventure. And I wrote a little program in BASIC um, that ran on my uh, Raider Shack Model 100 at the time. And uh, I would sort of give the players a grade. And I'd put in the levels and so on. And it would tell me how many experience points they got. And of course, the, the levels and the, you know all that I put in the, specifically into the uh, program and how many levels you should have to, how many adventures you should have to play before you rose the level, and that was all built into the program. Well, and maybe that's the professor in you because you know James and I have talked about that because you know Gary in the DMG says that you're supposed to rate the performance on a scale of one to four of each player, and that determines the, the amount of weeks of training and then the money. James and I have always been somewhat hesitant to, at the end of the adventure, to say, okay, now Jim the thief, no, oh, man, no, no, you're a three, you know, and, and but so how did, how did that, how did that go over with your players? Oh, we're fine. They didn't have to keep track of what they killed. Um, the treasure was only there to be used. I didn't have to put vast amounts of treasure in because I did not use that bogus training rule. Ah. That's the biggest, most bogus rule in the game because you end up having to become a money grubber to get enough money to train. And my point of view is there are two ways to learn. One is through experience and one is through classes. And of course, I taught 17,000 classroom hours of stuff over the course of my career. There were many times when I wasn't teaching, but many times when I was. Um, so you're fighting these monsters and so on. You're going to learn an awful lot from that. You don't need to be trained by somebody. You, you might be able to benefit from talking to somebody who's a higher level and has more experience, but you don't need to cough up vast sums of money to get trained when you've already been trained by yourself and by your own experience. Even if that made sense, turning the players into money grubbers was a really bad idea. Yeah, we've had that. We have yeah. that exact same thing. It's, but also um, just rating. You know, the, the idea of, yeah, that was pretty good, but you know, you, you didn't. You could have picked pockets there. I'm giving you a two point seven eight well, on yeah. this. It's a rating, a rating for the party, not for the. Individual. Oh, I see. Well, but in in the DMG, it talks about individual ratings. Well, that's more difficult, and it opens opens you to controversy. Right. No, I, I rate the whole party. Right. See, I want parties to be self-regulating. Yeah. When I play, my objective first is to make sure everybody stays alive. Everybody in the party stays alive, unless they're really stupid. At which point, you know, if you're going to rush off and do that on your own, I, there's only so much I can do for you because I got to take care of everybody else. That's how I want all the players to be. It's it's, again, very mission-oriented and foreign to many, many, many D&D groups nowadays because essentially you don't have to worry about getting killed. You're about character getting killed. And if you don't have to worry about getting killed, you can do all kinds of zany, bizarre things. And you end up with, uh, at the extreme, what I call all-about-me D&D, where each person, when, they, when their, their opportunity comes up, 
they're wanting to contribute to the story and do something cool and this and that and the other thing. And the other people just sit around and watch. And to me, that's a really bad idea, but that's the kind of thing you get into with certain kinds of story games. It's not a case of the referee, the, the GM telling the players a story. It's the case of the players collectively writing their own stories with themselves as the star. Now, in general, you can um, set up Dungeons and Dragons and, and many other games, and not just role-playing games, in two extremes or somewhere in between. And one is you set up a situation and let the players write their own story. And the other is you set up a story that the players go through and they're going to go through the story the way you organized it. Right. And my point of view of that one is, again, as I said, uh, I'll, I'll take the professional storytellers. Thank you. I don't need you. You, you may be good, but most likely you're not. Yeah. And I always thought the former was more fun as a DM because you get to be surprised by what happens. You're now really more of a oh, participant. Oh, yeah. As soon as you run the different groups through the same adventure and see the vastly different things that happen, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to ask you about, because you've made a reference to your campaign being good versus evil. So I wanted to ask you about uh, the Necromancer. So that's one of my favorite. I love the Necromancer class that you wrote for White Dwarf. Um, as you know, I've mentioned I'm a huge fan of the Halls of Tiz and Thane, and I'll be put the Necromancer in draft form in that. It's later published. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful class. Um, you know, I will use it as an NPC, but it, it, it sparked a, a, a back and forth between you and Don Turnbull, which um, I, I thought was interesting. And obviously not just because you're, you're our guest here. I mean, I side with you. I'm like, what's the big deal? Um, but, but Don somehow, I guess, took it that you were advocating for players to use evil characters, which actually I've done. Um, and so do, do you remember sort of that back and forth you had with Don? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. That's, that's way too long ago. <laughs> so what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> you know, I said in in the rules that it was a non-player character to be used as a bad guy, because I felt that the evil clerics, as just sort of a mirror of good clerics, just weren't my idea of an evil priest. Yeah. And so I made my idea of an evil priest. Now, I'm sure some people have ignored my advice and used that as a player character. But that was not my intention, although I did provide experience points, I believe, and levels and so on. Uh, I looked that was at that. always true, though, of NPCs as well. I mean, even in the Dragon magazine. I mean, that was standard fare, was that you listed experience. You almost sort of like tempting people to run it as a PC. Yes. And, and I have run evil parties as well. And uh, it does work in certain circumstances, and it's interesting to be in an evil party when you're neutral. Um, I've probably been in evil parties when I was evil. And, you know, if you've played the game enough, then you've experienced a great deal of smite evil in the name of God. And my clerics get to be crazy because they see the fighters just chopping people up with, you know, two attacks around and so on. And so my clerics try to get hold of of girls of giant strength, so they can really smite the enemy. Um, they get a little insane, but high-level clerics tend to get a little insane anyway. Um, so it did come back to this is a really good monster, but it's a human monster. And 
Um, if people want to play evil characters, then they should be able to play evil characters. I'm not going to tell them not to. Yeah, and, and that's what it would, that's what the, the back and forth basically was, is that people then started writing in saying the necromancer has kind of crossed the line, you're encouraging, encouraging the playing of evil characters, and then other people writing in, yourself included, your, your, your letters were published saying, look, um, it's, it's meant as an NPC, but uh, what's the big deal if you, know, if, if you want to play it? Go for it. I mean, the, the necromancer was a loner. It didn't really fit very well, and so yeah. So I just thought it was sort of an, an, an entertainment. What it did was, I think it your necromancer class brought up a larger issue of should D and D simply be good versus evil? Which I know I think we had Tim Cask on, and I think Tim Cask, if I recall correctly, felt very strongly it should be good versus evil versus a lot of other people who don't necessarily think it has to always be. I mean, look, it seems like half the player characters tend to be chaotic neutral, right? Because they feel like they can do anything they want. Chaotic neutral thugs, I call them, yes. And that was, that was to me, and still is, what players want to be because then they don't have to worry about doing good things and they can do the occasional nasty or even evil thing, and yet they don't suffer the penalties of being evil. Right. And the penalties right. of being evil when I play is, I do no alignment on everybody in the party. If somebody's evil, I'm going to charm them out, and because they're evil, I'm not going to have them in my party of good guys. And uh, you know, let let the evil guys get killed, not us. So exactly. there are penalties to being evil. But a lot of the chaotic neutral thugs, they don't want to be called evil. They want to have no constraints. And, you know, that's the 21st century in a nutshell is a really big dislike of constraints. And um, just to, uh, uh, to, to close uh, a hole we talked about earlier is, yes, I think, James, you are correct. I think Lou's argument was the rats are to throw to monsters when you're running away <laughs> to try to get them to, to, to eat it. Um, and, and stop chasing you. Well, and, and thank you, uh, Dan, for bringing the, uh, the controversy with uh, Don, and Don and the necromancer, because that was one of the questions from the chat. So he was, Menu was very appreciative of you asking that question, because... Uh, oh. Because so, uh, do you have the chat up? Are you able to see the chat right now? Or? I do yeah. not. I don't have the chat so that's up. A, no, that's, no, that, no. that's exactly right. So, so, Lou, why did you – so as best I can tell, around the mid-'80s is when you stopped being a regular contributor. I think late 1984, you stopped being an official uh, contributor to White Dwarf. Two things happened. Yeah. White Dwarf lost the D&D license and wasn't interested in D&D articles. Okay. The Dragon decided to change their policy and require buying full rights, all rights, to an article. And no self-respecting creator sells all rights to something unless they really get paid a vast amount. So I said, no, I'm not writing for White Dwarf anymore, or for Dragon anymore. And I looked in again some years later when uh, Piezo had it, um, and they still had that policy. And so I didn't write anything for Dragon Magazine. And to this day, I don't sell anything without keeping the rights. And that's why I can do these reprint books because I retained all but the first world serial rights. In fact, um, Dragon later published a Best of Dragon, and I had several articles in it. And the question is, if you have first world serial rights, do you have rights to that? Possibly not. Well, I've never called them out on it. But there have been um, lawsuits about that 
where somebody wrote an article for a magazine and then the magazine used it in another place and they'd sold first world, world serial rights. And I think they won the uh, lawsuit and got some more money. Okay. And, and, and looking back on it, so are there a couple articles that you're most proud of? I mean, you obviously have, have so many. Are there some that you think of, of particularly favorably? Well, in White Dwarf, Bar Room Brawl, and that yes. has been played many times by many people and adapted to later versions and so on. And so that's one. And another one is the introductory adventure through Moria. And that worked partly because it was a good introductory adventure because the people playing, the presumption was that they were familiar with the Lord of the Rings. My experience back then was if somebody had read the Lord of the Rings and movies didn't exist, had read the Lord of the Rings and liked it, then they were likely to like Dungeons and Dragons. If they had not, then they weren't very good candidates for Dungeons and Dragons. There were acceptors, uh, exceptions like Albi Fiore had not read the Lord of the Rings, but liked D&D. Um, so I figured giving the players characters from the books would be really familiar for their first adventure. But what happened was I had to rate Aragorn and Gandalf, and I rated them functionally. You can rate characters two ways. Functionally is one, and emotionally, there's different names for it, is the other. So I had uh, Aragorn as a seventh-level ranger, and I had Gandalf as an eighth-level cleric because he couldn't raise the dead, but he had a ring of warmth or a ring of fire, something like that. And his, he had the sword, and, and I had modified the rules so that clerics could choose either one-handed swords, two-handed swords, or bows as an additional weapon, because I thought they were underpowered. Um, so, sure, he can use a sword. And a lot of people said, oh, my God, no, you know, Gandalf's like 18th level. Well, <laughs> if Gandalf was in a D&D game with a lot of high levels, maybe he was 18th level, but in the world he was in, which was very low magic, very, very low magic, um, and very low powered too, then an 8th level cleric was as close as you got to godlike. Oh, just about, you know, then you had Sauron above that, and 7th and, uh, level ranger could kick butt all over the place. He got two attacks. Um, so when they ran into the Balrog, which was an old D&D Balrog, which was a really fun monster that was good to fight because it had 10 hit dice and armor class 2. It's ridiculous I remember these things. And he did a 3 to 18 attack and a 1 to 12 attack. Um, so he was tough, but you could take him out. And if you had a 7th level ranger and an 8th level cleric, you could hold him off at least. So compared to the D&D Balrog, they were quite well um, leveled, but people just, just couldn't, couldn't stand it. They, they had to be really high level. It was an emotional thing rather than a functional thing. And what I think is interesting is with respect to, and, and, and I, I listed the, uh, the, uh, the Moria adventure as uh, one that I noticed in particular when I went through all of your uh, adventures because what's nice about it is, as you talk about, is it's you enter and you exit. So it's, it's, there's a clear mission. It's not just for a new party, a new group of players. It's not just, oh, go kill a bunch of things and get a bunch of treasure. 
you have a real goal uh, that's easy to understand for a new group. Um, mm-hmm. So I liked that. And what was interesting about your barroom brawl, I noticed that it was voted the best, and I can't remember what year, but it was the, voted as the best article that ever appeared in Dwight, White Dwarf magazine. Number three was Albie's The Lich Way, which is considered a classic. And so you actually, at least at some point in time, that was listed as the number one reader's favorite article, Barroom Brawl. And, and I don't take um, credit, and I didn't take credit in the article for the actual idea of a brawl, because I based it, I'd heard of somebody who'd made a, a Wild West brawl of that sort, and I just said, well, we can do that for D&D, and that's what I did. And, it's, and, and just real quick with that, I mean, uh, our friend Vic Dorso just made, you know, as part of his Kickstarter brawl, I think there's that classic, the trope of you, you, you meet in a tavern, and a lot of the modern D&D people are like, well, it's, the reason it's a cliche is because it's boring. You're all sitting there, it's awkward. What's the best thing you can do? Have action, a brawl, which is great. A, it's unlikely people are gonna die because it's more fisticuffs, so that your, your logic makes a lot of sense. You get action, people are doing stuff, they get together, they figure stuff out, and there's some momentum as opposed to them awkwardly trying to discuss with each other you know, their backstory, which is well, the way we played, was pretty, pretty bare bones. Yeah, I'm a fisherman, uh, that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. it's, it was a great uh, I, uh, a way to propel the game forward, and a lot of people start their adventures with action. That's, that's a way to, to do that. So I'm, uh, that's a great, I'm definitely gonna look that up uh, and see how that compares to what Vic did for his Kickstarter. You, you'll find it's quite different because it was not intended to be a preliminary to a adventure. It was intended to be something you played at a convention. Okay. So it was a one shot. Oh, interesting. And each player, each player was given a character and that character had a secret motivation. Some of the characters were evil. Uh, one of the characters wanted to get a woman, no, however he could do it. Um, another character was a man hater because they were female characters. And um, there was somebody who was a lawman and he was chasing a, a rat, a giant rat or, or a weir rat. And there was a weir rat as well and so on. And so it was the interaction amongst those and just having a fight. And some of them could be taken out and so on. And, and that was the end of it. And it worked well that way. How, how long does a game take? A barroom brawl? Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I've run it at least once, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> okay. At, at conventions, typically you're, you're talking uh, two to four hours. Okay. Wow. okay. And when you, have, when you have like 10 characters or more, it's going to take a while because each one has to do things individually because they're not on the same side. Um, so I would think it would went more toward four than two, but I don't remember. I also, another article that you wrote that got a lot of attention was your article on why dungeons exist, mm-hmm. uh, right? And I thought it was quite interesting. I remember that article. That was even before we were getting ready to interview you when I was going through the old Dragon magazines. That was one that really uh, interested me because it was, you know, and I, you've talked about realism and you've written articles about realism in D&D. Um, and having some sense of realism. And I also sort of wonder, yeah, why, and I think you pointed out in your article, it seems a little silly, perhaps, to have all these dungeons and the place to be doing all the adventure, and why are they there? And, and so you wrote an article trying to give an ex, uh, a rational explanation, right? 
Yes. And I, and I, I have a tendency to look at games through a lens of, well, I'm in military history. PhD is in military and diplomatic history. Um, but it breaks the immersion for me if silly, what I could call silly things happen. And so I'm trying to find rational explanations, not excuses for why things may happen. And the basic rational explanation for a dungeon is if you have magic of the sort in D&D, you don't have castles anymore because they are not decent fortifications. You may have something on the top level, but you dig in. And that's where the dungeon comes from. I don't buy the mad wizard business. Because is it, is it the, um, well, we need a place to, you know, enslave the maiden that we've uh, kidnapped. But isn't um, the uh, gunpowder, isn't gunpowder basically, I think, right, is what brought an end to castles, right? Yes, because it was at some point you could get bombards that would knock down the walls. James, are you impressed? That you know. That I know. That, that, that the client, yes. Yes, that's good. What was your PhD in military history? So you, if you were in England, it sounds like you were studying British military history. And if so, did that sort of inform the way you approach D&D? No, it was British naval history. It was aircraft in the Royal Navy, 1908 to 1919. Oh, do you play a World War I uh, aerial game by any chance? No. Really? Okay. I have, I have been watching... Um, YouTube videos about two games that are very interesting. Uh, Ultimate Admiral Dreadnoughts, which starts kind of in 1900, and uh, Rule the Waves 2, which also starts in 1900, but moves up through where you can have aerial stuff. And I might someday buy one of those games. But, uh, of course, if you buy a game and you really like it, you spend an awful lot of time playing it. And I already have one stupid video war game that I play hours and hours and hours and hours. So if you, and of course, you're very well known for Britannia, right? Which uh, the game that's been through many, many editions. So if and you were- another one this summer. Oh, really? With plastic pieces and uh, the interface has changed, but the rules are all the same. So but it'll be, sorry, it'll be in the same package with a two-player dual Britannia that starts just as the Romans are about to leave and goes through the, to the end. And that's like 90 minutes or less. And are you playing any? So, I mean, you're very interesting because at the same time that you were writing all these D&D articles, you were also doing uh, board games. Um, and um, do, do you still play role-playing games or are you now just board games? Well, my, I'd say that my favorite game is Dungeons & Dragons, but I don't have the opportunity to play generally. And that's partly because I moved, but when I was in North Carolina, all the people I played with had moved away. Um, also, I've watched a lot of groups play here in Florida, and an awful lot of them are playing in ways that just don't attract me. Um, well, do you know where the current, in, in our humble opinion, where the current center, other than, okay, we'll be second, other than Lake Geneva, where the current Mecca or first edition AD and D. The Medina. In our the Medina of uh, it's not quite Mecca. It's it's another, another holy city, but it's <laughs> not. Where's where's the Medina? Do you know where the how Medina is? How many of your how many of your viewers 
and listeners are going to understand what you just said. <laughs> I, I, That's very educated. I think I think a bunch of them will. I think uh, we have a pretty. That's good. We we have a small but educated uh, cadre. So that's right. I didn't, but I didn't understand it. But I'm putting it together based on context. So, um, you know where that would be? The Medina. Where? Orlando. That's right. Orlando. That's where we're at. Exactly. Why I'm so surprised you said that. Uh, <laughs> and why is that? Well, because we're because in Orlando. You guys there would be one way to say. Well, it. the first <laughs> that's the first thing, Dan, which we pointed out, the uh, the one of the great, uh, you know, Dave Arneson was here for a number of years. That's taught, right, full sale. Taught at full sale, so it's uh, and we are just one of uh, the various you know spiritual progeny that he had that came here for role playing, and then we've established this this group here. Uh, we have uh, hundreds of people in our. Now we don't play with hundreds of people, but there are hundreds of people in our meetup, uh, and we play well before the pandemic disaster. We had about forty or fifty. So you're now very close. You're within, you know, you're in you're in within <laughs> two or three the, hours. You're you're in the yeah, in the yeah. epicenter of this. It's about two and a half hours to the airport from here. Yeah, we, 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 we should have done this. Uh, we should have just driven to Lou's house. <laughs> That's right. And he'd have us sit outside. He'd be like, <laughs> That's right. He didn't letting us in. I thought well, this was via Skype. <laughs> there was a time in North Carolina when we would have uh, D&D weekends and people who had moved away would come back and play along with the guys who were still there. And that was great fun. Um, so we'd play at least two of the days out of the three if not all three days, and have very long adventures, obviously. Um, and that's still something that would be interesting to do. But driving to Orlando and back in one day is a little much at my well, age. It sounds like uh, GrogCon, October 9th through the 11th, may be an opportunity for Lou Pulsifer to come down and game first edition with us and be one of our guests. That would be wonderful. Yeah. It, it might James, be if you can pick him up. There's a good chance you won't have your convention. You know that. Well, we're being we're being optimistic. So uh, yes, October is is not bad. See, I'm worried about the World Board Gaming Convention, which is in Pennsylvania in late July, and I'm beginning to think that's not going to go. Well, you, you're missing out. One of the advantages we have is we have very few attendees. That's right. <laughs> How many is very few? <laughs> well, GrogCon, we were part of the Crucible Convention, and the Crucible Convention is primarily uh, a miniature wargaming convention, which is much larger, which is very successful. GrogCon, we could, if you count everyone who played in a GrogCon game, which included some spillover, I think we hit 30. That's right. Three zero. So we could social distance. That's right. Ha! Yeah. So we're so don't Social count us out. Is, uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons game just doesn't sound practical to me. <laughs> not without going to Zoom, you know, and, and being in different places, which I'm which not defeat, particularly attracted to. That would defeat the purpose. Um, what would you liken? So you obviously you were you were a professor for for many many years. Do you in some ways view GMing similar to teaching a class? No, I never thought that way, at least not consciously. Um, what is it like? See, I used to say referee, that the, the, you were neutral, but you aren't neutral. I mean, when you come down to it, all role-playing games are negotiations between the players and the, and the referee. 
because the rules themselves are like miniatures rules. They're open to negotiation in many respects. But the GM's purpose is to scare the snot out of the players, but not to kill them. Because if you want to kill them, it's easy. It, it sounds like teaching to me at this point. I'm not sure that you well, have, why you haven't seen the you connection. You have to be hard on people. You do have to be hard on people. And I am trying to teach them, but what I'm teaching them is the, the what I'll call the proper way to play the game. But a lot of people don't want to know that anymore. People don't want challenges in their entertainment. In the board game world, uh, an awful lot of people don't want to play against anybody. They'll play in games where there are four players, but they each are doing their own thing. They're not playing against the other players. And that's a very strong uh, trend in games that you do have, still have uh, people who want to play against each other, but it's a smaller and smaller group. Now, college students are kind of interesting because some of them are used to playing video games, and some of them play video games where they're playing against other people, and then they don't mind playing against other people in a board game. But it's you get to older people, 30s, 40s, and so on. Uh, the ones who play Euro-style games just don't want to play games against other people. And did you ever have, so when you were teaching and a class was over, did you ever have a student come up to you and say, Dr. Pulsifer, I have a question. Like, yes. In Dragon Magazine number 42, you argued that that ever, even once, happened. <laughs> um, it certainly happened in teaching. I mean, I can remember talking with a guy for an hour after class was over. Um, he didn't want to ask you about, like, Australis. Well, um, the thing that I particularly remember from that conversation was he said we, he was 18 years old. We were taught in high school that the only way to learn something was to take a class. Well, this is academics, and I don't like academics. This is academics trying to make themselves more important than they are. Because there are lots of ways to learn things. You don't have to take a class. And of course, the people who learned it first didn't have a class to take, which I can say about game design. And yet you get to the point where academics say, if you don't have a degree in game design, you can't teach game design. If you don't have a degree in creative writing, you can't teach creative writing. It doesn't matter if you've written five novels in your, or even if you're a bestseller, you can't have a full-time job teaching game design or teaching creative writing. And game design works the same way. Um, and that's academics. You don't want to get me started on the education system in this country. Um, but obviously it's, it's failing badly. I mean, look at, look at the people we have out here doing stupid things. And I hope you guys are intelligent people and are opposed to Trump because he's an idiot. But, you know, not everybody has that point of view. And part of it is education. They just don't understand how things work. Um, I, I, I guess I, so I, I guess never I have to actually, put my hat, take my hat off now. My uh, uh, make America. Where's your maggot? That's right. Well, I, it's inside. I have to go get it. Actually, I'm late for a protest rally. Cause, so can, can we wrap this up so I can uh, get out there? James is going to be protesting outside your house tomorrow. That's right. <laughs> I was going to bring. Long as he outside, I don't actually, care. actually, yeah. The first that count, the, the, uh, that'll be the that'll be the campaign. Ever, ever, that'll be the campaign. Look, 
This looks like, this is like, we're, we're trapped in a house, we can't leave? Yeah, that's right, that's welcome to my campaign. That'll be great, but. So, but, but so did any students ask you about D&D, like after class? Like a history Not class would finish? Not okay. that I remember. Now, um, at one point when I was teaching, I started a game club, because that's the sort of thing you expect to have at a, at a, a college, is a game club. Um, but I don't believe we played D and D. Uh, I had board games to play test and they played those sometimes and they played a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, D and D didn't much come into it. Okay. Okay. They missed an opportunity. James, do you have any questions on the chat? No, they're just, they're, they're commenting that, uh, the good doctor is the first one to drop the F-bomb on, uh, on, on Grog Talk. Yeah. But so that's, uh. That's that's a first. So they 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 want to give an award. Are we going to lose? Did are we going to lose our F bomb? Yeah, you did. Oh dear. That's okay. Are we going to lose our FCC Pro license? Well, no. We we put this as not safe for children. Uh, that and on YouTube you have to say if it's safe for children or not. Yeah, and, I know. And old, uh, uh, middle-aged men and uh, speaking about Dungeons and Dragons is clearly not safe for children. They have they have better things to do. So uh, th than that. Should, should, should we ask Lou some of our standard questions, like what does he think of Unearthed Arcana? Well, well, when did you stop? Did you play for a long time, or did you stop after a certain... Uh... Um, I played for a long time, and I have played occasionally uh, in more recent years, but the opportunity hasn't arisen very much. Like, moving from North Carolina down to here really screwed up my schedule for three years altogether because we had houses to sell and we had a lot sure. of work to do on them. Well, you you mentioned you, uh, you mentioned I'm sorry you mentioned that uh, uh, that you know the the games you saw were not to your liking. So maybe and I, and I get your feel of the old school aesthetic, what we call you know old school Renaissance. Um, you know we play first edition. I think partly it's nostalgia, partly because. We don't want to learn another system, which just, uh, you know, for us, we know the kind of game we want to play. So what were the, what was different uh, that you saw that, you know, didn't compel you to keep playing? I, I played first. When second came out, I said, it's not enough different from first to worry about it. When third came out, I did play it and referee it, but first edition and second encourages cooperation, which is what I want when I play the game. And it does that because it requires combined arms to succeed and because the game as presented by Gary was, watch out, you might die. Third edition is one man army. I'm gonna find all the rules I can that make my character even more powerful and I'm gonna show off how powerful I am. And part of that is because it, it posited parties of four people, which is way too small. One of Lou's laws is the uh, survivability of the party varies as the square of the number of party members. So a four-person four party is 16, and a six-person party is 36, more than twice as survivable. Um, if you only have four characters, they have to be one-man armies, pretty much. And third edition also became very crunchy. There was a lot of details to get through with the stat blocks and so on before you could play the game. Now, fourth edition I played but never refereed. And the one good thing it did was bring back cooperation 
to the point that you had individual powers of characters that could only act to help other characters. It was also very difficult to die because it was wowified, you know, World of Warcraft. Right. Um, and they made a terrible mistake. Um, they focused on combat instead of the other things that are interesting in D&D. And combat is what computers are good at in computer games. Now, 5th edition, uh, somebody called it a cleaned-up 1st edition. And to some extent it is. It's much simpler. It's easy to get into the game. They made it sure you could make up a character and get going. But it's very easy to stay alive because of bizarre spells like that. Revivify, I think it's a fifth... Third level. Fifth level clerics can yeah, cast yeah. it. Yeah. And you sort of shrug yourself and say, well, how do you ever die? But what they're doing is making it easier to play because... Many of the people who are playing now are not um, gamers, even, let alone war gamers. And they don't particularly want challenges. They want to have a sort of a playground. And, okay, that broadens the market. And, you know, if you're in publishing, you're there to have a broader market and make more money. So I, I can't object to that particularly. And you could play 5th edition and just cut out some of those spells... And then it would be much like first to me, only more highly organized and easier, more accessible. Yeah, and they have hardcore rules. And, you know, it's interesting. My, seven, my youngest son, who just turned 18, so all my legal responsibilities are now over except to my wife, uh, which is awesome. Uh, but he's trapped with me. But he's a, he's a good kid. You know, he plays fifth edition. He plays first edition with me. He plays fifth edition with his friends. And exactly what you're talking about, Lou, there is that if you play it as written or as without any optional rules, it has that feeling of, I, I call it the A-team. I don't know if you remember the A-team back in the 80s where you know bullets are flying and the bad guys are exploding, but nothing ever happens to the A-team. You know, and there's no blood. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, like Commando. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh -huh. The movie Commando. But yeah. even there, they had some bloody... But the A-team, nothing could happen to them. And uh, you know, there was a, some tension and resolution, but really there was no... Uh, chant, and, you know, and, and no innocents were hurt. It was clearly good and bad. Um, now they do have uh, hardcore rules, but I think where they do go off the rails is you know there's so many classes and permutations versus the character. You know, really the, being a, a derivative, an extension of your playstyle. And one of the questions we had, um, you know, since you did play OD&D, the original box, and then you went to One E. Was that a, a, a natural evolution for you, or you know, did you appreciate, or did you like the earlier system? I thought advanced D&D was an improvement in general and in many details. I did use Unearthed Arcana. Um, yes. I tend not to allow lots and lots of optional rules because the optional rules and the new supplement and so on almost inevitably Raise power, the bar, power creep, make yeah. things easier. Yeah, power power yep. creep, right, power creep. Lou, what did you like about it? Because we've had a lot of players on our show who have played OD&D, uh, and they usually say they preferred OD&D because it was more wide open. They weren't so constrained by all the rules. What is it that you liked about first edition AD&D over OD&D? 
it made some things more sensible, I think. And again, I worry about that sort of thing. Um, there were more explicit rules that would avoid some of those controversies. And yet there was still a lot of flexibility. Um, as I said, any RPG is kind of a negotiation between the players and the GM. And it reduced the need to negotiate, I suppose you could say, without uh, constraining people too much. What we've had more recently, um, if you look at it from the point of view of the publisher, the great difficulty of D&D &D or any other RPG is finding competent referees or GMs. There's a lot of complication there. It is work for most people. And so a lot of people just shy away from it. And uh, sometimes the rules are written in super great detail so that the referee or GM can become a rules arbiter rather than the god of the world, which is what Gigax imagined it as. Um, but that means you get the rules lawyers really arguing with the, the GM. And at some point, yes, arguments are part of the game, but it has to be that the GM is the final um, controller. And if the GM thinks that a rule is bad, the GM can throw it out. And for quite a while, uh, Wizards of the Coast, TSR Wizards of the Coast, was going toward... Um, let's make this easier for the GM by giving him less responsibility. And I think perhaps with fifth edition, they got back to more of an equilibrium. That's right. Page 230, you just basically quoted uh, the afterword. You are the creator the, and final arbiter. You, you, by ordering things as they should be, the game as a whole first, your campaign next, and your participants thereafter, you will be playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons as it was meant to be. That's exact, that's, and I think that's where, for me, um, OD&D is too loose. I think if you have the right players uh, and, and you have players who are going to accept that the on-the-fly uh, determination that the games master makes is fair and consistent, great. Uh, whereas future editions, they try to simplify Oh, that's right. This is the reading from one of the Holy Trinity. I apologize. I didn't, I didn't preface it before. And now we shall turn to book page 230. Uh, Thou shall read that's from, right, from the book. The, the DMG. Page 230. One of the rules of D&D is don't worship the rules. That's right. And, but don't know, we have... I, I, have, I have friends who, who they want to figure out the demographics of, of a place. And the first thing they do is go into DMG and look for the demographic rules. Gary Gigax was writing a vast amount of rules. A book like that has vast number of words. My game design book has 100,000 words in it, and the revision will have 115,000. And uh, that's a hell of a lot of work. And I'm not actually writing rules. If you write that much rules, sometimes you got to slap something down, or you write something that doesn't get tested, and that's the way it is. So why worship the rules? And, and yes, you can do those kinds of quotes, because those aren't really the rules. Those are the ideas about how the game should work, which, of course, some people will ignore as well. But they're more likely to play a different game entirely than to continue to play uh, 
first edition AD&D and ignore a lot of rules. Yeah, I never designed my own set of um, RPG rules because I was happy modifying the first edition. It, it allowed for that. You could have house rules and you can change certain things. Like I say, uh, I let clerics memorize twice as many spells as they could use because I felt they needed that flexibility. Otherwise, they'd be stuck as a hospital or a medic where they just have healing spells. Um, I gave the thieves D6s and I let the thieves use bows because I could not understand why a thief couldn't use a bow. That's just nonsense. So everybody changes the rules and you cannot worship the rules, but the idea in some of the later rule sets was that you couldn't change the rules really. You were just interpreting the rules. And I think that may have allowed more people to be GMs, but it reduced the quality of the game for people. Yeah, it became, it became trying to be a computer arbitrator, almost like trying to simulate a computer game using pen and paper, which fortunately, yeah. in some ways, I appreciate 5th edition trying to bring that back. Um, and, and anyway, I'm just looking at some comments. People are thanking you uh, for some exchanges you've had on Twitter, which you're very kind to respond uh, about... Uh, the game and you know, obviously your old White Dwarf articles, people have appreciated uh, uh, there. Someone had a, a uh, let's see, we got a couple other comments here. Did you run a regular campaign world or did you run a like a, a out of the box campaign, if you at all? I made up my own stuff. Okay. That was the idea of old D&D. Um, I did use modules occasionally but the world was mine, and and the adventures were usually mine. Right, were there and any that, that would, today? Um, I'll adapt an adventure because I'm not in the groove of so on and so forth. But the world is still my world, and it, the adventure will be somewhere in the world. Gotcha. Were, were there any modules that? You, you remember fondly that was there a favorite that you went through or that you ran? Well, I didn't go through a lot of those old modules. The Giants certainly sticks in my mind. I never played Tomb of Horrors, you know, um, Temple of Elemental Evil somewhat, but we didn't get that far into it. Yeah, loopholes for running Tomb of Horrors would be amazing. We, we need to do like a charity event uh, for that. That would be... Yeah. His... I, I suspect that I... I have read Tomb of Horrors, but it was a long time ago. I suspect that I object to it, that I think it's too, no. too difficult and too random. I can sell you on it, Lou. You, you run a game, it's for charity, and only players who are Trump fans can play. That's right. <laughs> That's a winner. Who would, who would admit that? <laughs> they're, they're, or you better move. I, I literally don't know anybody you, except perhaps one you live in Gaines, uh, you live in Ga stepsister who, who is a... a you live Trump. in Gainesville. You're, you're, uh, you... Well, I lived in Fort Bragg oh, yeah. for 30 years yeah. or in Fayetteville, which is next to Fort yeah. Bragg. I don't know any, but there seem to be a lot of them. I, I can see it now. Join us for a controversial episode of Grog Talk. Um, I, I have some stock questions that are just like a hodgepodge. They don't have any connection, but I, they're important to me. First, 
you you said that James is going to he usually humors me at this yes. point. You said you're a Lord of the Rings fan, correct? Yes. Okay. Best of the books of the three, which would be your favorite, not including The Hobbit, the best of the three. The first one starts very slow, and that's a flaw. Oh. My brother actually. Oh. My brother. Oh no. My brother actually started to read it and gave up, and oh, years no. later went through. Okay. So the first one is out. The other two are about equal. All right, one point for James. Uh, <laughs> notice I have, and I have many, many people two. have commented. It's that the first one is very slow for the first I, like 200 pages. I have off. Okay, the first one took me three days to read. The second one two weeks. The last one two months. I started rereading them again. I ended at the big first chapter two towers. Some the exact opposite. How old? All right, James. Were you? James wins. How old were you? At the time, well, started. just recently, I was, well, what am I now? 51, I was 50. Um, and when I first read it, I was about, I don't know, 12, 13. We had to, we had to read, uh, in English, uh, Fellowship of the Rings. I, if, if it went a certain way, if I couldn't power through the first part, maybe it was because it was an academic exercise where you had a, I was really excited, and then I read it, and the poems, and the stories, and that weird guy um at that all right that's it no that's question number two and i already sense things are not going well for me <laughs> do you what it, do you have feel strong feelings one way or another about tom bombadil well see tom bombadil is something that was left out of the movies and quite rightly it's there <laughs> but it doesn't particularly move the story along <laughs> It, it is something that should be cut out. <laughs> All right. Thank, James, thank you. James, too. Dan, thank zero. You, and, well, thank you, uh, Lou. Uh, let, let me make an observation about the movies as opposed to the books. And other people have said this. The books are a story about Frodo and Sam, about ordinary people who become heroes. In many respects, the books are Sam's story more than anything else. When they made the movie... They made it Aragorn's story. And worse, they turned Aragorn into somebody who had tremendous doubts about a lot of things that the Aragorn in the books did not doubt. What the, the Aragorn in the books doubted was whether he could succeed. But uh, the movies could have been a lot worse than they were. And I, I, when I say movies, I mean the theatrical right. ones. I, I, sorry, I mean the extended ones. I watched the theatrical ones in the theater. I'd never touch them again. Because the extended ones are much better. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't right. know if I'm, I don't, have I I have them. I don't know if I've ever watched them in in their entirety after the fact. Oh, the extended doesn't. I think the extended is the only one that has the mouth of Sauron, right? I think that's probably true. But you know, they added about an hour to each movie, so obviously there's a lot of extra well, stuff. You know what really upset me is they they kill the mouth of Sauron. They behead the mouth of Sauron in the movie. That did not happen in the book. That was it. And, and Doctor Prosper would know this as a student of diplomatic history that that you you should you can't you cannot execute the ambassador. I don't care if it's the mouth of Sauron. Well, oh not again. But an awful lot of a lot of on a lot of occasions the, the ambassador oh. has been killed and sent back in pieces. Well, that was wrong. That, that meant the negotiations didn't go well. So actually, there is a, a hypothetical that uh, David asked. If Napoleon was dropped into the early 20th century setting, how long would it be before he understood the importance of air support? Since you're a... How's that for a random question? 
Well, he was, that's a, that's a really wild, uh, far out question, but Napoleon was an artilleryman. So he understood the value of the big guns. I would have thought he would understand pretty quickly that air support is more big guns in effect. So I think it would not have taken him long at all, but, you know, who the hell knows? Um, I've got to ask my uh, gnomes. Good idea for D&D, bad idea. Well, gnomes are a traditional mythology thing, so they were going to be in there. I'll take um, that as a the, point for me. The silly gnomes, the tinker gnomes, it, it becomes silly, and I'm not into silliness. So These, it depends on what kind of gnome you got. That's, that's not the first edition D&D gnome, James. What do you, that's not, no. That's not right. Well, uh, that's wrong. Doctor, I, it's a stereotype. I'll ask you whose cup this is. Because uh, guess what? It's not. Presumably Dan's. Yes. He knows me now. I'm the Bombadil Gnomes Fellowship of the Ring dude. So James you like whim whimsy. Thank whimsical. you. You are a good read. And You've read I am your not, student. I'm not into whimsical particularly in D&D because I feel... If you have the right group, if you're playing with friends, and see, I don't go to a convention and play with strangers generally. Um, if you're playing with friends, the fun comes from the people, uh, and it comes a lot from people saying things that they don't intend to have happen in a game, but it's funny. So they say it, and everybody laughs, and then the game continues without that happening. Well, yeah, uh, I think... Whimsicality is not part of uh, mercenaries or soldiers of God completing a mission. And to me, I am a soldier of God, God damn it. Well, and what's interesting is... Except when I'm neutral and then I'm a mercenary. Yeah, whimsical, there's... I'm not sure it's a, 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 in the thesaurus for it, but annoying is the other term for whimsical. And... Well, not go that far. You're ganging up on me now, James. This is not... This is I wrong. See a it's I, now you, you sensed it's two against I, one, no, and it's now not two. you're... It's a kindred spirit. It cl Finally, some lucidity on the other side of Skype. Normally, I get your... Thanks, Donald Dan, Trump. Dan, you only have to carry about his opinion. My opinion doesn't count. <laughs> well, you're like, you're a professor. I can't help it. I want, I want your approval. We're going to go some... We should do some ratings on you and rate my professor. Um, so, <laughs> so, a lot of D&D knowledge. Um, should neutral clerics be able to turn undead? Not well, answered in I the DMG. The answer that I heard on another one of yours was it oh. depends on whether they lean toward the positive energies or negative energies. Positive energies, they turn undead. Negative energies, they can try to control undead. I, I, I don't but, know. It's more shocking. Uh, you could make a case that they can't do either one because they chose to be yeah, neutral. I, I, I'm, I'm not more. I'm decide what I'm more shocked about his his answer that he's listened to another podcast of us. Was it, was it prescribed to you he, as insomnia? Druids, druids can't Correctly. do anything to undead. Right. And he listened to a prior podcast and still agreed to come on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even more so. Um, um, all right, so James. I didn't listen to your theme music. I like rock, but somehow that just rubbed me the wrong that's way. That's okay. What oh, kind well. of rock do you like? Wow. Oh, okay. even heavy metal and all oldies and so on. You know, I don't listen to modern. Well, okay. well I... Modern so, music so, I, so thank you. I, I wrote that for the show. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, thanks so much. It's, One for oh, dance. Wow. Right. Oh, you don't like it too? I'll change it. I'll put on uh, 
and put something else on. No, I like it. Oh, I like it. I think it's rocking. What uh, could you tell us? And I know we probably need to wrap up, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the conventions you went to back in the day. I know you went to uh, over in England. You went to what Dragon Meet, and you went to the Games Day. Um, how were those? I remember very little about them. <laughs> and on that note, I'm sorry. That's you know, when I went to Origins Two or maybe even Origins One. I, I was in England from 76 to 79, and a lot of things happened in this country that I wasn't able to participate in because I was over there. Um, so I think it was probably Origins 2. Um, but you know, you, conventions you, tend to run together in your mind. You do realize you're, you're creating the stereotype of the professor here. You, you don't remember the non-Turnbull issue or the conventions, but you remember the hit dice for a Balrog. <laughs> well... <laughs> It is the way it is. Yeah, we there's things we want to remember. Back back then, we memorized a whole lot of stats. How many hit dice does a troll have? Eight hit dice? I don't remember for sure. Um, And some of those things stick in your mind forever. Uh, But we encountered, you know, used Balrogs again and again and again, and so you tend to remember that where a particular convention you went to, and you know, it was like a lot of conventions, and then it's gone. and my, my, my final strange question is, what is your alignment in real? Well, I used to think it was lawful good. Now I think neutral good. Okay. Wow. James claims to be neutral good. But you clearly both can't James. be. What? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? You're a different political. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, all right, James, anything else on the chat? Uh, nothing more on the chat, but, um, you know, you did briefly mention uh, a new version of Britannia. W- what have you been doing? What are you doing now? What can people look forward to from Dr. Lewis Pulsifer? And how can they reach out to you if uh, they're on social media or these type of things? Well, on my website, I list where I put information about games, which is a fair number of places. And I am on Twitter my handle for almost everything is Lupulse, L-E-W-P-U-L-S. So if you look for that, you'll probably find me. Um, so I design games. Um, right now I'm finishing a revision of my book, Game Design, um, and working on another book, which is a book about how to write tabletop game rules. Uh, and I have a lot of other books in mind, but... You know, sometimes I'm a slug and I don't work on the books. I haven't worked on the games very much. I always have new games coming up. Uh, for example, the other day, lying in bed, uh, I came up with a new sort of Britannia-like game, again, after the, the Romans leave, that has only 13 areas and only three players and no dice. So that's very different from Britannia itself. Um, in February, I had a two-player game published called um, Stalingrad Besieged, which is a very simple game, although it's in a pretty elaborate package. Like I had, uh, the original game was Hastings 1066, so the original one using this system. And the idea there was to have a simple game that was just essentially a deck of cards, and you could lay them out as though they were a board and play a quick game. Well, then I did Stalingrad Besieged, and the publisher said, we want to make more money. So instead of having a virtual board, they have a real board. They made the cards much smaller, 
they added blocks, if you wanted to use blocks as the pieces, and then they added an inch and a half cardboard pieces, really, really large ones. So you have a choice between those three sets of pieces. The game is the same otherwise. Um, I have the Britannia reissue coming out in the summer, uh, along with dual Britannia. Um, there is a third edition of Britannia, which is mostly finished, but I got put off by some comments from conservative people, people conservative about the game. They didn't like changes. Because you get that. Somebody who's played the stupid game 500 times, and I know people who played it 500 sure. times, um, they don't want it to change. But it got through changing from the Avalon Hill edition, which was screwed up, because the Gibson's edition was screwed up and Avalon Hill screwed up more. And I fixed it in the Fantasy Flight edition. Um, and that's why I was happy enough for this one this summer to have the same rules. But I want to make it a better teaching tool. And that's the third edition, which will happen sometime if I don't die in the meantime. So, so you mentioned... At my age, you have to worry about it. <laughs> You, you, I mean, you mentioned... And I, I continue to put up uh, a video every week on uh, my channel. I have courses on Udemy and uh, Skillshare. Uh, so I have a lot of irons in the fire here and there. Um, so, yeah, we got... I write the column on, I write the column on uh, Ian World. Yeah, if you could just send me a couple of those links, we'd be happy to promote on Twitter and also on our show notes here. Uh, anything there. Now, the last question as far as game design in, in your book on game design, who, what is the audience for that? Is that for game masters who want to really think of uh, It's for as aspiring game designers. It's officially a video and tabletop game book. RPGs are not a focus. Okay. But yes, RPGs are an extreme of games. They're highly cooperative, usually, games that are very open. And yet, in tabletop games, what's popular is games, Euro-style games, which are very closed, and the opposite of those RPGs. Um, and board games in general are not much like RPGs, although when I play, I always use a board, because when you have conflict, fighting of any kind, maneuver and... Uh, Geospatial relationships are vital to what you can do. I get the heebie-jeebies when I see people playing an RPG and they don't have a board. Um, although that, what that does do is it lets the referee, the GM, sort of decide who's going to have to fight who willy-nilly because the players have got nothing to they say. Um, you know, I don't want the game to be as somebody called D&D uh, &D version 3, fantasy squad leader. I don't want to go to those extent. But you've got to know where people are and <clears throat> where they can get to. And I don't want to wing that. And, and it's interesting because obviously theory of the mind is, is a viable approach. Um, people love miniatures. Uh, the game I'm running, I use uh, table, virtual tabletop so we can see the figures moving around. And for... Uh, some folks, they have to play with that because they like the tactical, um, it brings verisimilitude versus, whereas other people with theater mind, that's the only way they get verisimilitude. So, um, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's 
tomato, tomato, using that kind of thing. There's, there's advantages, but you should play with the group that, uh, that, that encourages the style that you like. Oh, yes. Yeah, a lot of my uh, mission, I suppose you'd call it, in the Worlds of Design column is to show people that there are different ways to do things. And whether, even though I particularly favor another way, there are lots of other viable ways. And if that's the way you want to play, okay. But when you get into a game and you're in a game where they play a different way than you two, you're not going to like it. So if you're aware of these things and can perhaps ask beforehand, you can avoid a certain amount of unhappiness. Right. Well, um, I don't think I see anything else in the chat, and we've, we've gone an hour and a half, which I think is... Uh, I'm disappointed in you guys. I thought it'd be over two hours. Well, we, could, we, have, we have plenty more to talk about, but we're being very respectful. He has oh, seen the I'm, show. I'm just sitting here. I'm retired. I am locked down. If you want to talk more, I'm happy to talk. Oh, well, they, they, You should run Moria for us. That's right. I'm ready to go. All right. But you've already read it. No, I just skimmed. I know I didn't read each of the rooms. Well, I actually could kind of skim through the rooms, but I can't remember what's in there. How do I know? You I know? used that. I actually reused that several years ago. Um, I went down and and visited some people who used to live in uh, Fayetteville and in uh, their sons, they have many sons, and so I ran the game for them, uh, and that worked out pretty well, even though it was not intended for that. But they had uh, like uh, Jennifer had a high-level Amazon woman fighter character, and I put her in instead of Aragorn, mm. and that worked out quite well. Do you Have you stayed in contact with any... I mean, obviously, you married a D&D &D player, and so you're in contact with her, but so did you, and did you develop any real friendships with any of, of the people that we may have heard of back in the day? And, and if so, have you stayed in contact with any of them? People that you may have heard of, probably not. Because the D&D was a local thing, and living in Fayetteville, North Carolina is kind of a far piece from other places. And we haven't mentioned this, but for 20 years, I had nothing to do with the hobby at large. Yeah. Along about 1984, when I had to stop writing for, for uh, Dungeon and White Dwarf, and uh, so forth. And I had to make a living. I taught myself computers and made a living that way. Um, I pretty much didn't have anything to do with the hobby, totally ignored it until the late 90s and I found out that Avalon Hill had collapsed, had been sold. And um, Baltiman Publishing, well, who was it who bought uh, Diplomacy? Wizards of the Coast, I guess, Hasbro. Anyway, they'd said to uh, Multiman Publishing, well, we don't know what to do with all this stuff, so you can have the rights to Britannia. Well, according to the contract, when it went out of print, it reverted to me. So they didn't have the rights, right. but they didn't know that. Fortunately, the Multiman guys didn't want to publish it, and I finally cleared that out, but that was my first re reoccurring contact with the hobby. So it was published in 1986. They sent me a couple of copies from Britain because it was originally published in Britain, and I opened the box, and I looked at it, and I said, that's nice, and closed it up, and did not read the rules. And I did not actually see anybody play Britannia until 2004. And I went to uh, PresCon in Charlottesville, Virginia, and there was a small Britannia tournament there, and I just sort of walked up and watched. I didn't tell them who I was. 
Well, you know, you might as well take advantage of anonymity as long as you got it. Um, but it came out who I was, and they had jutes floating in the English Channel long after that was supposed to happen. Mm. But there had been a misunderstanding about the rules. And I said, no way! <laughs> Which amused everybody. And so then I realized I had to come out with a new edition just to fix the screw-ups. And fortunately, it's a, a robust game. So even though there were rules that were screwed up pretty badly, I think, it still worked fine for what it was. And then in the newer version, I added the constraints that should have been there to start with. And of course, some people didn't like those constraints. And to this day, there's one guy who says, well, the second edition of Britannia is a really good game, but the first edition was a great game. <laughs> Did you did you have to tell that? Did you have to convince those guys who you were? Like, did they ask to see your driver's license? Were they googling? Not that I know of. It remind it reminds you. I don't know if any of you seen Parks and Rec, where uh, it's the cones of Dunshire, where it's being played in the office, and the guy wrote it. And of course, he goes up to them, and and you know they're they're quite startled to well, find. I it's, know there are imposters. Somebody tried to. Well, I think it was computerized, but. A Lou Pulsiver showed up on Facebook that wasn't me, hmm. and started and started sending friend requests to my friends, and some of my friends said this is fishy, and they reported it, and it got taken down. Uh, I don't know. I, ultimately, I think the purpose was to then start making offers to them for bogus crap, you know, the kind of stuff you get on the phone. Um, I don't know of anybody who's impersonated me otherwise. Uh, of course, I am very tall. And uh, if people know that, then that takes out an awful lot of impersonation. Takes, I it, used to be six. It takes us out. It used to be six, seven. Yeah, it takes us out. Uh, I, I think if we stood on top yes. of each other, we may, we, we may get to six, one or something like that. Where uh, I think Dan is the most uh, uh, resembles his player character in real life, um, which is a gnome, no. a, a gnome illusion. No. Oh, I'm like surprised. I don't look like a no. I look like an elf. Come on, buddy. Or a halfling. But, uh, halfling, perhaps. Yes, he's, yes. Thank you. Yes. I'll take that over no. Not knowing how tall you are, yes. He's, he's diminutive. When he sit, I look very large next to him, and I'm, my wife says, yeah, I'm a small Greek man. So it's very, it's, I appreciate Dan. He makes me feel better. But he has a full head of hair, unlike me. So, well, Lou, thank you for your time, uh, today. This was, I hope you had a good time. Our, our, uh, here, here's what people are saying. You know, they are they've been pulsified. Uh, as <laughs> your, your your last name is now a a an adjective of of adverb of excitement and fun. Some people used to call me Lucifer. Ah, Lucifer, that's good. Oh. It sort of fits pretty well together, doesn't it? And I had a goatee and so on, and I looked Mephistophelian at the time. Oh, wonderful. Um, let's see what else they, they, uh, but not anymore. Now I'm just a big sugar bear and I, I gained a lot of weight and so on. Well, uh, we look forward and I owe you a, a file of this. So I'll work on that this weekend. So maybe this week or next week, I'll send you the, uh, away file as we discussed. I'd be happy to send that to you. Uh, if you have anything that's coming up that you want to promote, just let us know. We'd be happy to retweet it on our Twitter and social media. Um, the, the last thing, you know, go, you, go ahead. I just saying, it would be funny if he was like, you know, I don't need, I've decided I don't need that file. That's right. It's, I, <laughs> looking back at what we just did, it's really not worth it. It's, I thought it was going to be, the interview would be better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's, I think he's gracious enough to accept it. He may not do anything with it at this point. So that'll be, <laughs> but. Okay. So we, go ahead, Dan. 
What did you say? Is it time for D10? Yes, it's time for a D10. Do, I, we didn't. Pro He's got one. He has chaos. No, I don't have one. It, oh, it's his drink. Your watch as a substitute. If you have second hand, but I'm not wearing my watch. Oh well. No, we've got well. We what Grizzly, my familiar, is right over. Maybe Grizzly could roll, but Grizzly seems to be eating. No, we. So what we do is, at the end of each episode, we roll a D10. That's chaotic. I, and I'm lawful neutral. You didn't ask me my alignment. I'm lawful neutral. It is chaotic. I love random, but I'm lawful neutral. That something doesn't make sense. I'm confused. No, it doesn't. I mean, I've run into mm -hmm. characters who literally flip a coin to decide what to do. Oh, yes. I have rolled a random die. I've rolled a die as a cleric to figure out what spells I was going to pick for that session. And he, I wasn't very popular. And he's lawful good at the time. That was great. Yeah, it's, that's, wrong. it's wrong. <laughs> well, if it's wrong, wrong. I don't want to be right. This, <laughs> All right. This is what I have to deal with. Uh, changes every week. alignment. Changes alignment. Changes alignment. That's right. I'm the only. You're right. You, you, you're actually counting. We're all counting neutral when we play. Really, realistically. All right. So who's going to roll the D10 then? Well, I think Dan, you should because you set this up, and again, it was been a right. pleasure to speak to the. Good and then doctor. I can deny it. You know. That's right. I have deniability. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So here it is. Oh. Nine. Wonderful. That's a nine. Congratulations, Doctor. You uh, you've earned yep. a nine, which is Bravo. Which is Bravo. it was the the F bomb got it gave it a plus that's two. Right. <laughs> you 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 chaos. <laughs> we are chaotic. Yeah. It, uh, well, clearly we're not structured. I mean, we have this script that we supposedly follow, and it just falls apart halfway through it. So we we don't uh, we don't we don't follow to our own rules. But uh, hey, James, do we have the legal right to use when he said? You're, you chaos or whatever. Do we have the legal right to use that snippet and then to play it as a little soundbite? I, I believe so in the second world or third world or, or the, the nth world or something like that. But considering no one watches our show, I don't think, uh, you know, part of it, there'd have to be a suit on damages and what damages would it have? There's no damages. Right. So exactly. It'd be frivolous and, and uh, they would throw that out. So, but uh, I, I don't. Go ahead, sir. I don't have the thing, the, the, the phrase memorized, but somebody's compared doing a podcast to the question of whether if a man does something in a forest and there's nobody to hear, right. did it really happen? And can a woman object to it? And podcast, is there anybody to hear? Well, and, and you know, and, and well, obviously James, if you have people online now, somebody's listening. That's like good. Five. Yes. Well, yeah, because we, we, we slow down, at, slow down. We have had, we, <laughs> we have 15 people online right now. And that's we, down from. Sounds good to me. Sounds really good. Yeah. Because James and I looked at the, we surveyed the landscape, and we said to ourselves, you know, there just doesn't seem to be enough D and D podcasts. We sh we really should fill that gap. Right. There's not enough middle-aged white guys talking about a game from 40 years ago to other middle-aged white guys. And go figure, there are people who want to listen to that. So I know this is also shocking. I shared with Dan our demographics, and and. What the shocking part was when this uh, pie chart of gender, there was a sliver of females who actually watched the show. It was more than I thought, which uh, we were very impressed. So, um, so yes, you, 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 our demographic is not 99.97% uh, male with 0.003% not claiming their gender. We, we, we run 25 or 30%, which, again, was we, very good. Yeah, that's... Wow. That's because we have four. You can't have 99.997% <laughs> with the small 
viewer size we have. Yeah. You'd have to have much larger. It, yes, it's twenty. It's twenty percent because of the five. That's right. One out of five. One uh, out of five uh, podcast listeners are female in our case. That's uh, that's good. Four out. Four out of five, yes. like dentists. Literally, when we say one out of five, we mean literally one out of our five. <laughs> that's, right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. that's right. So. Um, and yet you keep doing it, and you have done it. What is this episode forty something, fifty something? Fifty-six. That's right. We've done it for a little over a year and a half. Um, and again, it was to sp support the grog. every week. Uh, we 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 were going to every other week, but now because of the pandemic, it's kind of like you know you're yeah. about to. Uh, not that we have this issue. You're divorcing your spouse, but now you're stuck. You're so like, well, you might as well. We're here. Got nothing better to do, so. Dan has tried a couple of times to break up, and and I I, I, keep I unleashed the pandemic to keep this thing going. So, yeah, uh, con I, you know, I, of course, I contacted the Chinese to to unleash the virus. I've been waiting this time to. You're welcome, doctor. There you go. <laughs> just just like the Chinese. Uh, sorry, global warming is a Chinese conspiracy. Whoa. That's another Trump Ho thing. Hold on. Oh boy. Uh, I. I I'm sorry, you're breaking up now, Doctor. I, uh, something. I gotta go. Didn't Actually, we? my my uh, I've, uh, my internet detection has said that you our our lines are being tapped just as you're speaking. This uh, place. This is a crank call. Who cares? It's a crank call. Who cares? I, I don't. I'm. I don't want to go to the re-education camps. That's what I was chatting with people. It's like, uh, yeah, I said it's too bad the doctor's going to be going to the uh, internment camps in January when the the election happens, but. Uh, It'll, it'll be nice. Day. Oh, but we got right on, doctor. And oh, I, I, we'll make sure. Actually, we won't do that. We'll just put a 5G tower on top of your house. That's what we'll. That's what. Uh, that's what we'll do that for you as well. So, my wife is English, and I'm. I suspect she'd be happy to move to another country. <laughs> ah, we're we're exporting our best, sir. We, I'm sure there are a lot of countries who are following our lead in many things. So. Uh, we, we, we're, that American exceptionalism of, of, uh, of craziness, we don't have this here. In fact, that's one of our claims to fame. Dan and I, we are completely ignorant of geography. And we have folks on from Australia, um, uh, Japan, and they just they bash their heads against the wall. When we're like, oh, Japan, Australia, how close is that? It's, it can't be too far. They, they can go see each other. So embrace the ignorance, sir. That's what we do. Uh, uh, but uh, again, thank you for your time. And oh, uh, David Thompson, who is our, he is, we have an empire. He is the Chamberlain of Australia. Uh, he has welcomed you after your two week quarantine from the US. He'd, they'd be happy to take you there. Uh, uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> it's part of the Commonwealth, right? Something like that. So. Well, thank you for your time again. Um, for those who are listening on the podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast. Um, thanks again to everyone who's listening. And uh, I appreciate everything, Dr. Pulsar, you've done in the past and you continue to do. Good, wish, good, good health, Godspeed. I hope uh, everything's well up there. And, and all kidding aside, um, if there's anything you need from us, we'd be happy to sojourn up to Gainesville. It's a, a road trip. We'd be happy to help if, they, if you need our assistance. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, thank you, Dr. Bilsiver. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, and, and of course. But well, we didn't make two hours. I'm disappointed. Well, you know, because you can come back again. We do. We don't. We can't have a repeat guest. That's uh, uh, that's not oh. that's not a problem. So for Grog Talk, I'm James, and I'm Dan, and we will see all of you next time on Grog Talk. Take care. 
This is Big Abushi Puppy Production. All rights.